0: Um, As you're seated, if you brought your Bible, which I hope you did, we'll just open up to the book of Acts together. Uh, We're going to look primarily together at Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 47, with a real emphasis on 42 through 46. Although 37 to 47 is important, uh, the whole chapter is important, obviously, as everyone is aware For our purposes together this morning, it will be 37 to 47, um, more so 42 to 46, and then Acts 13, 1 through 3, but 4 being important also. Um, The past couple of weeks, we've been considering God's purposes for his people and how that creates an effect or a consequence for all of our lives how all of our lives have been grafted into God's story by his own desire that Paul and many others would consider to be the eternal purpose of God, that God longs to have a people for himself, a people that he will share life with in a joy-filled, intimate way, where the Trinitarian fellowship, God as Father, Son, and Spirit, and this outrageous communion that they've been involved in since forever and ever, um, they had a longing or a desire to share that with others. And so they moved from within themselves to create uh, humans, uh, you and I, and our lives now being brought into this eternal desire. Jesus prays it in John 17, Um, Father, you're in me and I'm in them and they are now in us. Oh, what a privilege to join in to the fellowship of the Trinity, who is God himself. Um, But we've been considering over the past couple of weeks the consequence of that on our lives. And this morning, as we look at Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 13, we are once again going to realize that it is God's desire to have a people that are going to be transformed and redefined. They're going to be redefined. Uh, meaning that there's a name change of sorts that is taking place. Uh, Peter would say in 1 Peter 2, remember, you are no longer the people that you used to be. He would say, beloved, remember, there was a time when you were not a people. You were just like the rest of the world. You were given over to the appetites of the world, the system of the age. You were being governed by a life of self-indulgence. Right? Peter would communicate this. Paul would communicate this in Ephesians chapter 2. At one point, you all lived your life this way, under the tyranny of rulers and powers influencing you towards a life of self-indulgence. He would say the feelings of the flesh and the thoughts of the mind. Right? Paul would say in Romans 8 that the natural mind or the carnal mind is hostile to God because it is unwilling to bring itself subject to the law of God. But it has always been God's desire as we've looked at for several weeks now to have a people that would be wholly his. He references them in Exodus and Numbers as his holy possession. I long to have a people that would be mine. That I could rescue from the nations. That I could transform and that would then demonstrate that transformation by a particular way of life that I would call them to. We considered God's unique interest in the practical details of our life, his intimate involvement that's reflected all throughout the book of Leviticus. All right, anybody who says God doesn't really care how I set my life up, read Leviticus. He absolutely cares how we set our life up. And the majority of the emphasis in Leviticus is these guys live that way, don't be like them the way that we're going to demonstrate to the rest of the nations that you are mine and that you are transformed is I am going to be in the midst of you. I am going to give you grace and power in order to live a life that is dynamically different than what everyone else around you that is still subject to the influence and the tyranny and the rule of powers is actually living. You will be mine and I will plant you in cities, regions, nations to walk with me a particular way which is to set your life up in the way that I will call you to and now as a way of life your way of life will demonstrate that you are under my ownership and leadership this has been God's desire to have a people for himself that have been redefined and Peter would say remember that you were once not a people but now you are there's a redefinition That takes place, even as it was on the day of the outpouring in Acts chapter 2, when in that upper room experience, the Holy Spirit came and visited them in the place of encounter in a powerful way. There was wind, there was fire, but of the many things that there was in the place of encounter, there was a redefining moment that took place. It was a moment of redefinition, it was a hinge point where now forever moving forward, their lives would now be reinterpreted through what it was that God did in that visitation. They could no longer consider themselves as they previously had because God had done something. They were now different. God had now redefined them. He had rebranded them, and in a particular way, he had renamed them. Peter would say, you are not only not a people, Now you are a people, but you're not just any people, you're the people of God. And it's important that you see yourself this way. This was God's journeying through the entirety of the Old Testament account, trying to arrest a people for them to see themselves as the people of God and to no longer intermingle with the culture or the appetites of the hostile and rebellious nations that surrounded them. And Peter would say, beloved, remember, you've been rescued, you've been redeemed, you've been delivered, you've been transformed. God has given you power to actually be his people. He's released grace upon you to actually be all his. He's conforming you to the image of his son that he loves. Yes, in an individual way, because you are a new creation, but then in a corporate way, as we together are a new creation. We are a new version of humanity. We are a gospel people, meaning the people that the gospel has actually purchased and the people that same gospel actually produces. There is a people that the gospel produces and that people is called the people of God. We go all in on a transformed people, right? There are many models. There's a lot of ways to build. There's a lot of ways to go after this thing. And in many instances, there are meetings that people long to mimic. Be that what it is. We're going all in on transformed people. I don't want people to want to mimic meetings. I want people to want to model after what a transformed life looks like. And you don't always have the privilege to see a transformed life in the midst of a meeting. And so meetings are amazing for what they are, but we're not just trying to mimic meetings. We want to model what a transformed person actually looks like. Because the gospel produces a person or a type of product. And that product is a person that is wildly and dynamically transformed. And so we are after a transformed person that now is put together in a transformed people because the gospel didn't produce an event. The gospel produces a type of person. And Peter says, you are now that person and together you are now those people. You are the people of God. And it's important that we understand the assignment because the assignment is our identity. The assignment is to be the people of God together. That's the assignment, typically in the world and even in the church. We tend to begin with worldly assignments and then try to figure out how we're going to live out godly identity. And that's because we have it backwards. And so we start with who I think I am or what I do, and now I have to try to find out where God's purposes land in my life or how I'm going to be Christian in this particular environment. And so we oftentimes start with a worldly assignment and then try to consider a godly identity. And it's because we have it backwards. We start with the godly identity, which is the assignment. The assignment is to be the people of God. And then out of being the people of God, you can now be faithful with unique assignments that God may put upon our life. But what happens when we go backwards is we start with our worldly interests and the things that we already do and the busy or the clutter or the distractions or the other appetites that we have in this life and then oftentimes it eclipses the appetites for the things of God. So we start with my worldly identity and want to live that out faithfully as an assignment and then God's purposes get put on the back burner. Because the interests of the world eclipse the interests of God. And that was our consideration towards the end of last week. Is at the end of the age, you are not simply going to bring him something that you have done. But you are going to bring him something that you have become. And he is after what we are becoming. Because what we are becoming is what he has promised his son as his son's inheritance. A people that are like you. They are comparable to you. They just don't have a confession, but they're actually comparable. They've been transformed. And we need to connect the dots that it is the way of life that God has called us to that is readying us or conditioning us to become what he's promised his son and then to be with him and to be enjoyed by him in the place of forever. And if we don't connect the dots that God is interested in a way of life, then we will never have the necessary attention to the way that my life is set up, realizing that the unique components of my life are the ingredients that God is using to actually conform me to the image of Jesus, to make me a people that are comparable to his son that he loves. And so we must evaluate the way of life, which is why we looked at the Genesis 2 episode and the way of life that God prescribed to them before they violated the terms of the covenant and had to exile them from the garden. It's why we looked at Exodus 19 When God came down, once again, sharing his heart to have a people that would come under his leadership, that would be defined by his love and his influence. He longs to have a people that would be his and that he could actually tabernacle in the midst of them. It's why when you journey, Through Leviticus and Numbers, and even towards the end of Exodus, when they build the tent of meeting, it was so that God could have a physical reference point in the midst of his people. You need to know that it is my jealousy to find a place of abiding in the midst of you. And every time you see this tent, it is going to remind you that I want to be with my people. Every time you look at this tent of meeting with the glory cloud and the fire and the presence of an image or a man that speaks with Moses even face to face, you are going to know Deep on the inside, it's going to get anchored that God longs to tabernacle with his people. So that when John opens his gospel and says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And that word came and put on flesh and tabernacled amongst men. It is an immediate reminder and a reference that God's mind has not changed. I want to be with my people. I long to abide. I long to dwell. But it's important that you abide by the terms. Jesus would say, obey my commands. That's how you abide in my love. Obey my commands. Come under my instruction, my teaching. Yield to my influence. Come under my leadership. Be mine. He says in John 8, I know those that belong to me. They're the ones that actually listen to me and do what I say. Those are the ones that are my disciples. And so God's mind has not changed. He longs to have a people that would give themselves to a way of life that would create a habitat for God. A context that is conducive for God to dwell in the midst of us. An environment where God can live and tabernacle amongst his people the way that he desires. We don't want some sort of visitation on weekends. We long to have a habitation. We long for God to find a resting place and to make us a habitation for himself. This is that Ephesians 2 at the end, that language. You're no longer foreigners and aliens, but God has now brought you into his house. You're now joint heirs. And not only now are you joint heirs, but God is knitting your lives together. And in the knitting of your lives together, God is creating for himself a unique habitation by the power of his own spirit. Meaning that our way of life together, infused with the gospel-centered reality, the presence of Jesus in a real way, that our life together by God's spirit, is what God is now using to build his house. And that house is by our shared life. Our lives knit together is what he is now using to make a habitation for himself. Well, it's important that that this is the frame through which we look at the book of Acts. Because if we don't look at Acts this way, then we are going to miss much of what Acts is attempting to communicate. Acts is not only history... Acts is equally prophecy. Acts is a prophetic declaration that what was required in the beginning is going to be required once again at the end. And the closer we lean in towards what will be that closing season of history where Jesus and others say that the rage of the nations will be unleashed, that Psalm 2 reality is what Acts gives us a glimpse of with wicked government structures, the tyranny of hostile leaders who are hell-bent against those that belong to Jesus, right? This is the reality of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and make their plots in vain, the kings of the earth? But the one who is enthroned, he is seated in the heavens, he laughs. Well, Acts gives us a glimpse of what is to come that in some way, if we communicate it like this, has already been. Acts gives us the understanding of the end-time scenario, when there's going to be hostility towards the people of God, where they are going to, even if Saul is a depiction of a wicked ruler or an antichrist figure who is literally persecuting the people of God. The rage of the nations unleashed against those who belong to the way. For they were first called Christians at Antioch because of their way of life together and how they followed Jesus as a people. But Saul's persecution, his hostility, his rage against the people of God. It's important that we understand what it is that Acts is actually trying to say. In Acts 1, you have Jesus alive from the dead. He is about to ascend. His enthronement is happening. He has made a mockery of powers and principalities. He is with his people and he is for 40 days teaching them about the kingdom. The cloud comes to get him. The angelic host says to those that are standing there, why are you tarrying? The same way that you saw him go is the same way that you will see him return. Well, Jesus said that himself in Matthew 16. For in the day that I come riding, On the cloud, in all of the glory and authority of my Father's power, I will come with a host of angels and I will bring my reward for those that honored me, that set their life up to love me and to live for me and to recompense men for deeds done while in the flesh. Paul would echo that in 1 Thessalonians 4 when he would say, with trumpet sound, the sky will crack and the Son of Man will come riding upon the cloud. There'll be lightning, there'll be wind, there will be glory, there will be the terror of that great and terrible day of the Lord. Reminding them once again of how shook they were when God came down in Exodus 19. And they told Moses, we don't want anything to do with whatever's going on up there. You can go and get that for yourself and come back and tell us whatever God is saying. But in Acts 1, Jesus is alive from the dead and he tells them, power is coming to you. I'm going to send power from heaven to actually accomplish my agenda in your life. And what I want is witnesses. I want to transform people... That are gonna provide evidence. I wanna transform people that are gonna make a contribution to the world, right? That's what a witness does. In legal matters, they provide a testimony or they come to tell of evidence. They have seen, they have heard. And Jesus said, I'm sending power from heaven to make you a witness. And in that day when the Holy Ghost comes upon you, you shall receive power but not just for some charismatic agenda, although we want that. We want to be dynamic. We want to live with the fullness of power and the fullness of the gifts. We want it all. But Jesus said he wanted witnesses. Because there are many that flow in gifts that aren't actually witnesses. They're not a transformed person or an individual that is conformed to the image of Jesus. Though they may be mighty in how they flow and go according to a gifting or a wielding of a certain personality of sorts. But Jesus said, my agenda is a transform people. And that's what I'm sending you power for. I'm sending you power to actually make you an evidence that is going to create a testimony when the rest of the world looks at you. This is my agenda. You're not receiving power to do your own thing. You're receiving power to do the Jesus thing. And there's power coming to you so that you can be mine and I can transform you. And you being mine as a transformed person is going to be a witness. It's going to provide a testimony or contribute an evidence to the rest of the world. Well it's important, they go and they wait for this. I probably would have went and waited for it too. Realizing that if I were left to my own devices knowing what I'm capable of. And the smoke and mirror show is not enough to get it done. So they go and wait. Because if he doesn't actually send power to do the things that he said, I don't have a shot. There's no hope. Paul said according to the law, I was found blameless. What he did not say is that before God he was found sinless. There's a difference. We can create the exteriors, the images. We can know all the religious formalities, but not necessarily be yielded to a power that is linked to a divine agenda that is actually working out God's purposes in each one of our lives. This is one of Paul's testimonies or the way he defines the difficulties of the days at the end of the age in 2 Timothy 3. He says, there will be difficult days ahead of us. Men will be lovers of themselves. They'll be lovers of money. Well, man, if we stopped right there, there's an abundance of these people that are in the consideration of the people of God. And Paul says in the last days, this will be one of the defining factors of the influence of the world swaying the hearts of the church. Where the world will get into the church and people that say they belong to God will normalize living like the world. But among them, he also says, they will be irreconcilable. They'll be lovers of their own pleasure. They'll hate the things that are good. But he also says towards the tail end of that, the last thing he says is they will have a form of religiosity, yet they will deny its actual power. The power is unto being a transformed person. And Paul says at the end of the age, they will deny the power that is working in them to transform them, to make them more like Jesus. But because they will be lovers of themselves, they will normalize worldliness and the relevance of the system of the age and the appetites that flourish there. And they will deny that God is working in them to make them something different than the people that surround them. We have to understand that when they went to wait, they needed to. They needed power in order to do what it was that Jesus was calling them to do. And they waited and he was faithful and he sent power. And in his sending power, he came upon them in a fresh way. He encountered them, he visited them. There was the suddenlies of God, wind and fire, extraordinary visitation. But then he casts them out. He exiles them from the meeting of sorts to get out in the streets where their experience is now creating chaos. There is conflict in the streets. And Peter gets up to preach and he declares what could be considered an apostolic gospel. You crucified God as a man. You nailed him to a tree and you murdered him. God came in a human vehicle to reveal his love for us as becoming one of us. And he was willing to lay down his own life rather than retaliate against us because of our rebellion and our transgression. Because God longs through the laying down of his own life to reconcile even his executioners because of the witness that he gives off. In his humility, his meekness, his kindness, he says, I'm willing to lay down my life for you even though you're hostile to me and you would rather murder me. But I believe that this witness that I'm giving off is going to be powerful enough to crack your calloused heart. I'm willing to come to the end of my own life as a way to try and better your life. Who is this king of glory? And Peter gets up to preach. And upon their hearts being pierced, in Acts two thirty-seven. They say, what must we do? Because if the things you are saying are real, if they're true, we have to do something about this. And the idea is, I just can't keep doing my own thing if what you're saying is true. I just can't keep living the way that I've been living if what you're declaring is reality if these things are ultimate, if this is the heart of God, if what you're saying is God's communication to human or to mankind, I have to have a response. We would say it this way. The gospel is not neutral. It demands a response. And no response is a response. And they said, what must we do? And Peter says, repent. Which implies the idea, turn from your own wisdom, turn from your own way, turn from all of your own wants, all of your own demands, turn from the love of yourself and yield your life to Jesus. Come under his leadership and let his love transform you. Be all his and go all in with him. This is the idea of repent. Repent is not just feel bad about your sin, Right, right right Most of us, we'd rather be happy than holy. You know what I'm saying? Like if somebody could pray for me and I wouldn't feel bad about the things that I do, I, I would take that in most cases. You know what I mean? But conviction is real, because the spirit is real, and conviction is real because it's God's redemptive offering. Come back to me. There are things that are cluttering up our life of intimacy, and I want to be all yours so that you can be all mine. Come back to me. Let's eliminate all the distractions. Let's offload all the other lovers, the things that are eclipsing your jealousy to be all mine. There are others. That's the idea of repentance, is let's eliminate the love of the others and come back to me as a holy obsession. Come back to me as your ultimate fascination or obsession. So Peter says repent. And then interestingly enough, it immediately flows into And then daily they devoted themselves to a way of life. When you hear these words, it would do us well to once again be reminded of the Genesis 2 jealousy. A way of life that is going to create a context for God to abide. When you hear these words, and they devoted themselves daily to, you should once again be reminded of the Exodus 19 jealousy, I long to have a people that are mine who would actually set their life up in a way that would create a context that is conducive to me walking in the midst of them. When you hear these words, and they devoted themselves daily, they were given over on a daily basis to a way of life that would create a habitat for God to abide A habitat is a creature or an organism's natural place or environment where they live and thrive. It is an environment for an organism to live and grow. It is the place where that said um, organism can find its place of being, resting, home. And God's desire is to have a people who would set their life up in a way where he can have a habitat, where he can build his house, where he can find his home. When I think of habitation, I think of house, because that's what Paul communicates in Ephesians 2. He says, you're no longer foreigners and aliens, but you've now been brought in to be members of God's house. And in being members of God's house, he's knitting your lives together. Way of life. It's a shared life experience. Jesus does not love any of us enough to amputate us. You don't have graduation unto amputation. In our desire for isolation and independence amputation from the people of God where I don't need to be a part of a people, I can do the Jesus thing all by myself. Well, that's not what the scripture says. That may be what you say, but that's not what the Bible actually says. The Bible prescribes that Jesus saves people to make them a part of a people. The writer of Hebrews would say, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves. In other places, it's the idea that God is knitting our lives Together in order to create for himself a habitation. When Peter writes, he would say to you, exiles, those of you that see yourselves as aliens and foreigners. Together, as God's people, sojourning through this life, which is a Hebrews 11 reference. That great cloud of witnesses, those that have gone on before us, those that saw something in God and determined that he was everything, he was enough, he was all-sufficient, and was satisfying them in every way, they now realize that they were misfits. And this is God's desire— is to have a people that realize their exile from the things of the world now that now, now hear me that doesn't mean that we're not faithful with the things that God says to us. But what that does mean is we understand who we are. We understand whose we are. We understand that God has redefined us, that God has transformed us, and we are now living as his ambassador or his representative. And like a heavenly colony, we are now witnesses until he comes again on behalf of his transforming power and his desire to redeem the nations. And so we're not in the dark as to who we are. We know who we are. And because we know who we are, we know the way of life that we're called to. And this is what Acts is trying to tell us again. Is here again we have a people that are coming under God's leadership. Once again we have a people that are yielding to the influence of God in their day-to-day lives. Now, as we considered last week, right, these values of sorts, a way of life together, uh, because I believe that as you look at Acts 2 and then look at Acts 13, you find nine components of a living habitation. You find nine ingredients of a way of life together that creates a context where God is abiding in the midst of them. And that's what we find from Acts 2.42 Through 46. And if you want to, we can look at these verses together. Because in Acts 2, you find six of these components. And then in Acts 13, you find nine. Or you find three more, which makes nine. And you might just think that this is nonsensical. But I would, in every way possible, suggest to you that this is foundational. That it is foundational. It is foundational to God. And it is foundational to us as a people thriving in the purposes of God. Because it is the conditioning of a way of life together that actually readies us to be able to handle the unique assignments that God may reveal to us. That one of the worst things that can happen to us is to be released into an assignment that my way of life does not in a fundamental way have the ability to actually carry or sustain. Where the thing that I'm now pursuing becomes more important to me than the way of life that God has actually formed me into his image by. And we abandon the fundamentals for whatever new, trendy, relevant thing based off of appetite or desire that we may have in a moment. Something that we've always wanted or desired to have that now becomes more important to us or more all-consuming to us than the way of life that is supposed to actually create the foundation for us to be responsible with whatever said thing. Much like it was for them in their wilderness journey. I'm trying to condition you with a way of life where you would learn to actually live my principles so that when I bring you into the promised land, when I bring you into a land flowing with milk and honey, you won't get your bellies full and forget me. You'll forget a principled way of living. Because now you'll seem to have apprehended whatever outcome it is that you so demanded during the time period I was trying to condition you to live a certain way. And so the idea that God is not trying to condition us by a particular way of life um, is in every way possible very real to the things that he reveals. And here in Acts 2 with these verses we find six Components of a way of life together. Acts 2, we'll pick it up in 42, says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they sold their possessions and their goods, and they divided them among all as anyone had need. And so continuing... Daily in one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted... Oh, wait. No, no, no. Wrong verse. I got a little bit ahead of myself. That's Acts 13. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Here we find six ingredients of a way of life together. The six ingredients of a way of life together that we find here in Acts 2 are a teaching that shapes a way of life. They were devoted daily to the apostles' teaching. It was a gospel-centered, presence-centered teaching that defined and then directed them in a way of shared life together. They, they, much like when Jesus said, when you pray, say our. This is an us thing and not just a you thing. He said, when you pray, say our, Father. They devoted themselves. It's a they thing. It's an us thing. And they were committed to a particular teaching that shaped their way of life together. The next thing that we find, now not necessarily in this order, But you find a teaching that shapes a way of life, and it's together. You find corporate meetings. They went to the temple day by day, together. You find house meetings. They went house to house as a way of life with a variety of ways to gather. I think of Paul's charge in Acts 20, verse 20. When he's meeting with the leaders of Ephesus on the beach of Troas, knowing that he would not see them again because of the call to go to Rome. And he said, remember how I lived among you, preaching publicly and teaching you house to house with tears or with many tears and humility, revealing to you the full counsel of the things of God. You find a teaching that shaped a way of life. You find corporate meetings. You find house meetings. You find times together in prayer. For my house shall be called a house of prayer unto all nations. We want God, even as Gladstone exhorted us when he was here just weeks ago, to be a people who embody house of prayer and not just meet for a prayer set. We want to be a people who, as a way of life, embody the reality of God's jealousy that his house our lives knit together creating a habitation would embody his desire for neighbors and nations and that would be manifested in the midst of us through our life of prayer that we share in a variety of spaces and places and ways that we gather as our life is being shared so you find times together in prayer you find hospitality And shared meals, which is the idea of the Lord's table, this covenant meal, the celebration of the Lord's table, the Passover celebration. Do this as often as you do it and remember me. My body broken, my blood poured out. For this is the reality of your new covenant invitation and now fellowship. As Paul would say to the Corinthians, If any man gives himself to the Lord, the two come into union and become one spirit. As we are now joined to the man Jesus, it is the idea that the celebration of this table and that covenant meal, that is spiritual warfare because it's a declaration of war that we will no longer feast upon the table of the influence of powers, even like Daniel said in chapter 1, verse 8, he made a resolve to not feast upon the delicacies of the king's table because he realized that one of the battlefields in his moment, one of the battlefields in Babylon, the battlefield in a generation, in his moment of history, was found on the table. And so this table being symbolic is a declaration of war. And so we celebrate the Lord's table. We celebrate this covenant meal. Yes, individually, in smaller, uh, more compact ways that we gather as individuals and families, and then together as a tribe, as a corporate people. We don't share meals as often as we do and even occupy space on Sundays like we do because we don't have anything else to do. We do it in a very intentional way to rally around the Lord's table as a people and as a family to declare our allegiance once again, that he is king over our lives, he's enthroned in the midst of us, we are his, and we will declare that in the breaking of bread and in the pouring once again of this wine, although I'm not endorsing drinking. I don't believe drinking will send you to hell. Let's just say that. All right. Paul said, don't be drunk, but I'll leave it up to you. Ezekiel 44 says that if you want to live in the most holy place, that alcohol is not permitted. That's not a personal opinion. That's God's communication through Ezekiel. You can wrestle with that for yourself. In the most holy place, alcohol is not permitted. That's what he said in the responsibility of the Levites. I want to live in the most holy place on a consistent basis. I don't just want to visit there. Moving on. (laughs) Uh, Another component. Anybody remember nothing else that I had to say? (laughs) Oh, Jesus. Uh, Another component, which would be the sixth component that we find here in Acts 2, which, again, it's a teaching that shapes a way of life. It's corporate meetings, it's house meetings, it's times together in prayer, it's hospitality and the sharing of life and meals, meaning the opening up of our hearts and homes to one another to share the most intimate space we have, home, which is why God wants to establish home in the midst of us, a context conducive to him abiding. We find shared finances and resources, it's commonality and generosity, It says that they began selling possessions and offloading resources so that those that had needs among them would be taken care of. Generosity was one of the defining markers. It was one of the qualities of the revival that shook that city and the region. Man, may we have a people where I get it. People are talking about revival often in a variety of ways. But may we find once again a people who shake a city based off of generosity. May we find a people who throughout the region and even the nation, God has become embodied in them and can now be generous through them to where their commonality, they had shared interests and resources. Their commonality created a generosity as a way of life that created awe and was inspiring by the world around them, realizing that God was in the midst of them and the way that they were together could not be manufactured even by the best of the abilities that the world may bring to the table. God was in their midst, and he was provoking hearts, and he was shaking a city, and he was adding to their number daily. The idea that Acts is communicating here in chapter 2 is Acts 1, Jesus is alive from the dead, he deserves a people, he's going to give them power to actually be his witnesses and do the things he's calling them to do fundamentally it is a way of life together that is going to condition them to be the witnesses that he desires. It is a way of life together that is going to be fundamental for them because it creates the foundation that undergirds, if you would, their way of life is the undercurrent that conditions them to be responsible for the other things that God may reveal to them. So we just don't offload the idea of a way of life, nor can we create some concept where we're not interested in the way of life, because it is the way of life that God prescribes that actually produces the product that he desires. And this is what Acts is communicating. Acts is trying to say to us, if you set your life up this way, these are the types of witnesses that you get which is why we begin to get the evaluation of certain people's lives. Acts is not just letting us tag along for a show. It's trying to tell us if you set life up this way, this type of habitation, This type of greenhouse creates the consequence where these types of witnesses are able to be raised. These types of witnesses are raised, they're matured, they grow, they develop. God can produce them, God can manufacture them. Like Samuel would have exhorted us back in September, if you build the greenhouse, that's your responsibility. Go all in on building the greenhouse and leave it up to God to raise the John the Baptist the goal is not to try to be the John the Baptist by way of assignment the goal is to create an environment when God can actually raise and nurture a John the Baptist in the midst of us if he wants to and this is what Acts is trying to say if you set your life up like this these will be the consequences because this will be the type of people that come out of that way of life And they committed themselves daily to. They committed themselves daily to. The goal is for this way of life to be embodied by us together. These components, because it's God's desire to be embodied in his people. It's why he longs to have a habitation. We know that God wants to be embodied by people because he came in a man. He came in a human vehicle, God embodied in a man, which is the man Jesus. But we know that it's always been his desire, because he's the all-consuming fire, like the writer of Hebrews tells us. Yet he is found seemingly contained or embodied in the bush when he encounters Moses. And this is the idea of our life, is we now have God alive on the inside. And this eternal flame, this all-consuming fire is now embodied uniquely, individually, yes, in our lives as a new creation, but then together, as he's knitting our lives together, God is embodied in his people. And there's a witness that only the church can give. There is a demonstration of God himself that is reserved for God's people. There is something of God that can only be seen as a corporate family comes together under his leadership and influence. It's why you can't have the fullness of God nor reveal the fullness of God all by yourself. And I'm sorry for how troubling that may sound. But God has reserved a witness of himself that is for his people and the way that his people embody him. And there is a corporate family that gives off a witness and a demonstration that God delights in, where he has a habitat that becomes a habitation. And our way of life, as we embody these components of a way of life together, gives God the wineskin, if you would. It gives God the environment, if you would. It gives God what he needs for him to walk in the cool of the day, with us again. And he was provoking people through their way of life and adding to their number daily. God doesn't subscribe to the Wendy's model. Like if you build it, they will come. It's not how he builds. The idea was is he built his people by their way of life and it created a witness that was provoking, and through that provoking, he was adding to their number on a daily basis. In our consideration, God is doing the adding. And if God is not adding, then we must consider our way of building. Because our way of building is communicating what we actually believe the church is. And we believe that the church is a family, that it's a people, That it's a transformed people who have come under God's influence. And in every way, we will do what you say. You are worthy of a people. This Revelation 14 people who will follow the Lamb wherever he goes. This is who we are. We're a people. And not just any people, we're the people of God. And our way of life together is actually conditioning us to be faithful To everything that God says. Our way of life matures us. Our way of life grows us up according to Ephesians 4 where leadership equips the saints so that the saints can wake up to who they are and when they wake up to who they are they can actually start working because there's a real equipping. And as they're being equipped and they get to work, the body actually begins to build itself up in love and to produce the things that God desires. Well, this is us together as a church, as a people, as a family. And as you turn to Acts 13, we find three more ingredients. Now, what's important, just a few comments on Acts 13, and then uh, we will... Uh, Potentially, we will see, bring this thing to land, uh, and to land a particular way. What's important to know about Acts 13 is that Acts 13 is a prototype. you, You have to investigate the details. God is not random. The things that he is communicating, he's revealing for intentional purposes, Acts 13 is the first community that is referenced outside of what God was doing in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, the gospel was poured out in Jerusalem. Witnesses were being raised. It created a persecution. That persecution reveals a madman who is hostile by the name of Saul. Saul is chasing them. He is finding them even in their homes, beating them in the streets and endorsing and celebrating their execution. He stands over the body of the witness of Stephen, who gives off an extraordinary witness, much like Jesus. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. They don't realize their hostility and their rebellion against you. But you're so good that even now, as you're embodied in your people, you're still giving off a witness of yourself And that witness of God cracks the calloused heart of Saul as he finds himself intersecting with the man Jesus. And sometime later, because of the persecution of Saul, it says that the believers in Jerusalem had to scatter throughout the region. Well, interestingly enough, it took the persecution for them to actually obey what Jesus told them in Acts chapter 1. They had grown comfortable in their containment, right? Sometimes we stop short along the way. Jesus told them, you will be my witnesses, yes, in Jerusalem, yes, in Judea and Samaria, but even unto the ends of the age or the ends of the earth. But they had stopped short. And so the persecution that arose pressed them to obey the things that Jesus had already said to them. And they found themselves scattered throughout the region. Well, in Acts 11, there's a council of sorts. And the leaders of Jerusalem hear that there's some Jesus movement or thing happening in Antioch. And they say, we need to go and evaluate what's going on. And they determine that Barnabas is the one that's going to go. And so Barnabas goes, but we need to understand what it is that Barnabas is actually looking for. He's looking for an authentic Jesus people. He's looking for a people according to what they had known and cultivated and normalized in Jerusalem. He was going to see if their way of life together was what was going on in what was happening in Antioch. He wasn't just going to see if there was a people who had a confession. He was going to see if there were a people who actually became converts and in their conversion were actually being transformed and in their transformation were given over to a way of life together. Go see what's happening and tell us if it's the real deal. And Barnabas goes and spends a time. And in that time, he reports back, it's the real deal. Like it's really happening here. So the idea when you come to... The ingredients that are referenced in Acts 13 is that these components are already on top of. The implication is the way of life that's referenced in Acts chapter 2 is already the foundation for what's going on and being communicated now in Acts 13. And here in Acts 13, Luke tells us there at Antioch, there's a church, it's a family and it's not a franchise. It's a transformed people and not just some type of gospel event that happens on Sunday. Their way of life together is defining them as God's people because they together being conformed to his image and learning how to live in covenant loyalty. Learning how to live. Covenant loyalty to Jesus, covenant loyalty one to another. They're learning how to live in covenant loyalty by their way of life, by their shared life. There is a Jesus people, Luke says, there in Antioch. It's important that we know what church means when Luke says it, so that we just don't come to our own ideas or interpret it by the multitude of other things that people call church in our moment of history. Luke says there in Antioch there's a church. He means there's a transformed people. There's a redeemed people. There's a family of new creatures, and they're really going for it together. They've given themselves to Jesus and one another. And now their way of life is conditioning them where the rest of the world watching them live says, oh, they're like him. And they were first called Christians in Antioch because of their way of life together in following Jesus. And Luke says there in Antioch, there's a church in Acts 13.1. And we'll just read verses 1, 2, and 3. Now there at Antioch, there's a church. And in the church that's there, there's prophets and teachers. It's a diverse gift mix. It's not one stream. It's not one preference. But it's a people who embody the fullness of Jesus in a diverse way of gifting and expression. And Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Five different people groups. It is the expression of one new man. It's the redeeming of the nations and the destroying of the hostility that separates people groups. Here you have an African, a Roman, a Jew, a Greek. Luke is communicating the details. He's saying God has done it in a people. The embodiment of God's desires, which is the destroying of of the hostility that's raging throughout the nations to compartmentalize people and to subdivide them by way of hostility where people hate one another, therefore they can't be together, much less be family in Jesus. Paul's most absurd sense of reconciliation in Ephesians 2 when he says God has even reconciled Jew and Gentile. He's done it. And he can do exceedingly abundantly, above all or beyond what we could ever ask, think, or imagine. This is in the context of him reconciling the hostility of peoples throughout the world. To make them family in Jesus where God is embodied in a people that creates a witness or a testimony. And there's evidence in Antioch. And Luke is communicating the details. Diverse people, diverse gifting. Diverse ethnic backgrounds. But they're there together as the church. And they're there together ministering to the Lord as a way of life. With worship and intercession and fasting and praying. Now here you find another handful of the ingredients. You find ministry to the Lord as a way of life. Which the idea in a variety of translations here... Is yes, in a moment they were together spending the day in worship, intercession, fasting, and praying. But the language or the verb tense there is it's not contained in a day but that is it an ongoing way of life and that on this day they were just doing what together they had already been conditioned to do as a way of life but there are details because of what happened on this day that Luke is trying to allude to or to create an emphasis for that it was on this particular day that because of the way that their way of life had given God what he desired, there was a people that created a place for the leadership of the Spirit and God could say anything and do anything and seem to um, disturb them if he wanted to or disrupt them if he wanted to with his desires and his assignments and his instructions and the things that he would say to them. And here they are together, worshiping, interceding, fasting, praying, and the Holy Spirit speaks. There's something about their way of life together that created a context where God felt free to say what he wanted to say. Where the leadership of the Spirit could be real in the midst of them in order to speak to them define them, assign them, release them, put grace on them in order to do the missional objectives or the things that God would instruct them. There was something about their way of life that cultivated God's desire and freedom to say to them things that were on his heart. And he says to them in the midst of their way of life together, Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul. Here we have a unique missional commissioning, right? Which, interesting enough, is what Samuel told us. This is the part we can't manufacture. We can't manufacture God's voice. We can't make him say something about somebody. We can't make him speak while we're worshiping and interceding. We can't make him say something while we're fasting and praying. We can't make him, out of our own desire, define us a certain way, regardless of how bad we might want to pursue something. There is a piece of this whole equation that only God can do. And it's the defining, and it's the commissioning. This is what I'm saying about Paul and Barnabas. And I want you to rally around them and say amen to that. And I want you as a people to lay your hands on them and to stand with them and to be united in the mission that I am actually commissioning them for, and together as a people, to undergird them with fasting and prayer and intercession and then celebration based off of the testimony or the report or them bringing back the consequences of what God's grace does on a people when they do what he's asking them to do. Here we find three more pieces, and it's worship and intercession, which is what we know, as the tabernacle of David. It's the tent that David erected in 1 Chronicles 15 1 to 3. It's this ongoing way of life in worship and prayer that comes under the beauty and the worth of Jesus and is revealed in a way of life that says, You alone are worth unending adoration. You alone are worth unending attention and affection. And so we will give it to you as a people because it's what you deserve. This way of life in worship and intercession, together. This way of life in fasting and praying, together. And then this way of life where God's grace to define people and then to release them or commission them by way of his instructions to them for missional assignments and objectives. We want to be faithful with the things that God says to us, but we want those things to be carried by a way of life that's actually continually going to condition us to thrive in God's purposes where we don't get the commissioning before the cultivating of a way of life so that we end up disrupted in the things that God calls us to because my way of life didn't actually mature me to be able to handle or do what it was that God was saying to me. And that's why calling is not the same as commissioning. They happen at separate times. David was called in 1 Samuel 16. As many others were Joseph in or in Genesis 37, but their day of call was not their day of commission, and we often interpret the two in being the same, and we think that because we're called, we're ready to be commissioned. And we think that because God is saying something about us that he's already made us to be the thing that he is saying about us. And there is something in between the two points of calling and commissioning, and it's called process. Where God processes us by a way of life that readies us, it matures us, it grows us up so that when we finally step into our day of being defined by a particular assignment of sorts that now rests on our life, now we can handle the thing that God has asked us to do because what we do won't disrupt the way of life that fundamentally defines us as the people of God together. It's like, oh, bro, I'm just too busy for the way of life now. I've got too much going on. I'm too important, and these other interests, they're more beneficial to my journey now. So I don't have room in my life to actually embody these values of a shared life together. I don't have time for that anymore. Now what God has asked me to do is more important than the life that he fundamentally has called me to live. This is very disruptive, right? And we find that over time, uh, we end up disrupted, Right, if this is the particular angle that we try to enter into the conversation. But what Acts is communicating is that it's the way of life together. These nine ingredients or components that gives God a habitation for himself, a teaching that shapes a way of life. Corporate meetings, meaning times together in a larger context, as often or as infrequent as the Lord says to do them. House gatherings meaning the opening up of our homes and our hearts to share life together, right? You can participate in church events and not necessarily journey with anyone or let anyone into your journey or how you're journeying. So the idea is not just church event participation, but it's as a people to open our heart and to open our home, which the reverse is true. If your home is not open, then there is an aspect of your heart that is not open. And so it's sharing the journey together as a way of life and being hospitable to one another. All of our values are found in God himself. And as we want to embody God together, our way of life reveals God because our way of life reveals what he's like We're not after some cultish or cliquish value system that just sets us apart where we are now different. No, we're not different just to be different. We're different because it's divine. It's divine because there's an infusion of a power and a grace that's fueling the things that God is asking us to do together as a people. And that includes hospitality and shared meals and life. It includes commonality and generosity shared interests and resources. It includes times together in prayer, embodying house of prayer. It includes worship and intercession as a way of life, tending to his heart, bearing his burden, joining him as a royal priesthood. This is the idea of worship and intercession as a way of life, it's royal priesthood. Once you were not a people, but now you are. You're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're the people of God. Royal priesthood is worship and intercession, primary, fundamental, ultimate. My way of life is going to reveal that I've come under his influence as a way of life. He's enthroned upon the praises of his people. The idea is that worship should create the consequence of surrender, where we just don't sing songs together, but songs lead us to deeper places of surrender. That's the consequence of being a worshipful people where worship and intercession comes under the banner of his leadership, his throne, where God rules in the midst of us. And it creates a way of life where we worship and we intercede. And then together in times of fasting and prayer, where he is our delight and man does not live by bread alone, but where we turn from the table and we turn intentionally intimately to the man Jesus in the day when the bridegroom is taken from them, then they will be found fasting, where his absence of sorts is fueling our desire, where his absence is putting fuel to the heart fire that each one of us live with, where this eternal flame embodied in this ordinary bush has created a desire for God that turns my delight to Him. And together as a people, we fast and we pray so that He can invade our appetites, our affections, and our attention and make us what He wants us to be. And then out of this way of life together, He can speak to us in whatever way He wants. He can put assignments on us. He can tell us, go do this. Be responsible with this. I'm asking you to occupy space in this place. I'm asking you to take this position, start this business, have this role, travel this way, undo the things that you have known. I'm asking you to take up a posterity of sorts, occupy space and responsibility. It's not that we don't want those things, but we don't want those things to eclipse what God says is the fundamental things. And the fundamental things is a way of life together that is going to create the witnesses that God wants so that he can release them to a variety of spheres of influence in every place that our culture has to create an intersection for. So we want to be responsible with what God says. And we want things of destiny and calling but we want them to be conditioned and carried a certain way. We don't want that to be the main thing. We want the main thing to be what is our main identity and assignment, which is to be the people of God and to give God the habitation that he desires. And it's important that we say about ourselves what God is saying about us. Hear that. It's important that you don't say anything about you that God can't amen. That you don't think thoughts about yourself that God is not thinking. You want to think his thoughts, and you want to say what he says, and you want to come into agreement or into alignment with what it is that he says about you, whether you feel it or not. Your feelings are terrible, leaders, We don't feel it always. I don't feel like making my mortgage payment all the time. (laughs) God is going to make a way. He's doing a new thing, brother. (laughs) But you want to say about you what God is saying about you. You want to think thoughts about you that God is thinking about you. And even as it was, as God has so intimately and aggressively longed to have a people that he could redefine or rename, so it is individually in our own lives. There are unique seasons where God will visit us in order to rename us. Name changes are incredibly significant when God is in it. He rallies up to Abram and he says, you shall no longer be Abram. But from this point forward, you shall be Abraham. Well, Abram is exalted father. Abraham is father of nations. It's time for a name change. So that you can step into a greater place, a greater dimension of calling and destiny, and then demonstrate that in the way that you live. Name changes are incredibly significant. You shall no longer be Jacob, or you shall no longer be Jacob, but you shall now be Israel because you've wrestled with God and with man and you have prevailed. Where now out of the life of a man who considered himself to be a rebel. God could actually create a royal priesthood and a people would come out of him because he wrestled with his own identity and came under what God said about him rather than what he had always known himself to be. You shall no longer be Simon bar Jonah, but from this point forward you shall be Peter. For flesh and blood has not revealed to you the things that you now have come into. My Father has shown you something by way of revelation, and you're not gonna be Simon anymore, but now you're gonna be Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. Name changes are incredibly significant. You have Saul to Paul, a murderer, an executioner of believers and lovers of Jesus. The kingdom is a unique place. One writer would put it this way, that only in the kingdom will it make sense for Paul to enter into the age to come by the celebration of those that he murdered, where they will rejoice because of God's power to apprehend this rebel and to transform him, and to make him a man that he could delight in. And even though they laid down their own life in order to give this witness, they will celebrate because of what it is that God has done. We wanna be a people who are a habitation for God. And yes, at times, uniquely, individually, in our own life, it's going to require a name change where we come into agreement with what it is that God is saying about us individually, but then there are unique times when together as a people, we must come into alignment with what it is that God is saying about us. I'm sorry, that looked like it hurt. Where we must come into alignment with what it is that God is saying about us as a people and as a family. And we wanna be a habitation. The place where God dwells. The place where he finds his place of abiding or his resting place. Where he walks in the cool of the day in the midst of his people. Where our seemingly, let's say, Acts 13 vision of being this habitation or this community together of a transformed people under the influence and the leadership of Jesus. Where we are, the four components you find in Acts 13 as a local expression A covenant people, we're a church where as a way of life we embody ministering to the Lord or house of prayer, the praying church, better said, where God can raise people up as a way of life. When Dave was here in August, he spoke of an internship, an apprenticeship of sorts, where we would intentionally disciple people by our way of life for God to export them to plant and build in places near and far. And then where God would be able to have these missional objectives. Where he would be able to release or to reveal missions upon us. For us to be faithful to do them as a people. We want to be this together. And to give God what it is that he's asking for. And there's just this sense that the Lord is asking us to step into a greater place of demonstrating this together a greater depth or a greater dimension of this call on us together as a people as he says about us who we are. And I believe that what the Lord is saying about us is that we are a habitation. That this is what we long to be. And this is the equalizer. The habitation is a way of life that levels the playing field. The church has done a terrible job historically at valuing assignments and creating preferences based off of what someone does, the influence they have, or the money or the resources that they can contribute. But the way of life together is what levels the playing field. It's what takes the business owner, the prophet, or the pastor... The stay-at-home mom, the college student, and it levels the playing field to where the stay-at-home mom doesn't feel like she's failing God because she's not the itinerant minister. Where the business owner is no longer in enmity with the pastor, right, because, well, you just don't get me and you don't know what working a real job is like, right? You take up your little act six, it's better for me to get away from the tables and to give myself to the ministry of prayer and the word. Right where you don't have hostility based off of assignments and where we're not catering in a preferential way to what someone's been asked to do in a moment because anyone that's walked with God long enough realizes assignments can change and it's why we don't define ourselves by our assignment. It's why we don't glory in a particular immediate responsibility because God can do whatever he wants and he can ask for whatever he wants. And when we define ourselves by an assignment or a responsibility, we'll find difficulty in shifting with God when God begins to shift. And so it's a way of life that takes the platform minister or the pastor or the local or traveling representative with the business owner and the stay-at-home mom and makes them all feel as if they're serving God's purposes. They're valuable to God. They're uniquely yielding to Him and being influenced by Him and they're not inferior in any way because we're not leveraging our assignments against one another. We're going all in in a way of life to together with one another and no one is more important than any other because we share meals and life and times in prayer and we fast and we pray and we worship and we intercede and you don't need a fancy assignment of sorts in order to be given over to that so we're not defining who we are by what it is that God may have asked us to do in a moment, though we want to be faithful and responsible with what we do. We just don't let what we do begin to eclipse our primary identity and our way of life together as a shared family experience. And for that, we want to give God the habitation that he's asking for. And I'm going to ask everybody just to kind of stand up with me. I feel like we are to kind of conclude in a particular way. Uh, Actually, I'm going to ask Jansen if he'll come in. Bro, would you just play? We have been together... As I say together, what I mean by that in we and together is the Lord sparked something in our hearts in a unique way a considerable time ago. It would be a year, year and a half ago now at this point where God revealed His desires um, how many of you know, when God is ready to get your attention, he knows how to do that? He, he knows how to get our attention when he desires to do that. And he began to get our attention that there was a shift of sorts that was coming. And as we journeyed with the Lord and began to search more and more into his heart, right? It's pray, pray and seek his face. And as we together gave room to pray and seek his face, it became more and more evident that God was saying something about us and he was asking us to say that about ourselves too. And that there was a shift, a a aligning with God that he was going to invite us into. Um, God is into redefining people. And in that redefining, there is absolutely a grace, an anointing, a power that comes upon us when we say about ourselves what God is saying about us. And that's true absolutely individually, but then it's absolutely also true about us together as a corporate people or as a family. And it just started to become more and more evident that God was leading us towards shifting in what it is that we were saying about ourselves. And for those of you that have been around for a time, you realize that what we have said about ourselves for a long time is that we are the Father's house. A place where God is embodied through a unique set of values. Where he finds his rest in his people. And for a long time, as a matter of fact, it was five years where God would not give us permission to do anything outside of a home. And then he said, you've come to the end of the beginning. And we started renting space from a building and establishing a prayer room and a house of prayer and a variety of other things. But as we've reached a moment in our journey with the Lord, we really feel that what the Lord is saying about us is that we are his habitation. We are the place where God desires to have a context for Him to uniquely abide in the midst of us. And that context is our shared way of life under Him as King and His influence in every space and place of our lives. And so in our desire to yield to Him, because it's it's important when you, you don't have an agenda, right? I have no agenda. I want what God wants. And in wanting what God wants, we want to say about ourselves what he's saying about us. And after an extensive time of praying and and fasting and praying and seeking his face, and trying to investigate his heart, we felt like the Lord was asking us for a name change. We felt like the Lord was asking us to say about ourselves what he was saying about us. And what we really feel like the Lord is saying about us is that we are habitation that this is what we are we are as a church habitation as a people we are his habitation we are a people for him that is a house for him we are becoming a dwelling place for God and that together as his habitation he is saying about us that we are habitation church so I'm going to invite us back into a place of worship for a few moments and just the consideration of what being a habitation for God actually means and I'm going to in in a few moments come back and invite us or recommission us to like Joshua said as for me and my house make me a habitation As for me and my house individually, but then as for me and my house as a corporate people. As you are building your house using our lives, make me a habitation. Make us together a habitation. We wanna be the place where God abides. We wanna be the, the people who God embodies and our way of life creates the context where he walks in the cool of the day amongst us. Just like Joshua said, as for me and my house, this is gonna be the commission in just a moment. As for me and my house, and we have to consider that before the Lord. As for me and my house, in the way that I'm responsible before the Lord, Lord, I'm asking you, make me a habitation. But that just doesn't mean whatever I want it to mean. It means what God has prescribed. Make me a habitation. And make us together as a people a habitation. Because if this is what you're saying about us, then we want to say that too. And we need grace. We need you to pour out your spirit upon us as a people and actually make us in a greater way what you're saying about us. We just don't want to assume That by our own wisdom or by our own efforts, that we could somehow manufacture something that was like this. No, I don't want something that looks like it. I want what you say. I want everything that you say, and I want all of it together. And so, Lord, we need you to pour out your spirit. We need you to touch us in a fresh way. We need you to release grace upon us individually. As for me in my house, give us grace in every area of responsibility to make me a habitation. As for me in my house, I'm gonna serve the Lord and then together make us as a people a habitation, the context that's conducive for God to be in the midst of us. So as we enter into worship, Let's consider what God is saying about us. Even individually, because I feel like there's going to be a moment for that. I feel like there's going to be a moment where where we believe things about ourselves that God is not saying, and they need to be broken off this morning. Where we say things about ourselves that God is not saying, and they need to be broken off this morning. There's a name change of sorts. There's a redefining. There's an aligning with God's heart and with his say-so over our lives in an individual way, and we're absolutely going to go after that because I believe God's going to set people free. He's going to set you free to be you, to be the you that he knows you are and not just the opinions that you've come into agreement with or the circumstantial evidence that preaches to you to tell you that you're something else, where there's going to be a freedom in the house to be who God says we are, So let's just, for the next few moments, come back into a place of worship as they begin to lead us. And then, as I said, I'm going to come back and commission us in a particular way. And we'll take time to.